We continue today, as we've been doing throughout Advent, looking at texts which point to the second coming of Christ. Our text today is from 2 Peter 3, and it is again, perhaps surprisingly, a traditional New Testament reading for the Christmas season. Now, 2 Peter 3 is at first blush about as far away from standard popular sentiments about Christmas as one could get. And hopefully by now, we have a sense of clarity about why the church viewed these texts as Advent texts. Right? The reason is the first coming is the second coming in advance, sets the second coming in motion, if you will. Now, I say that a lot, I know. But when a person grasps this, it is absolutely jarring. It's disruptive. And if it doesn't create a certain displacement, a certain kind of tension, a disorientation from which we need to be reoriented, well, then these texts, which are littered throughout the New Testament, have simply not been properly heard. These are jarring texts. The great British theologian John Webster, referring to this text from 2 Peter, says, Advent involves being jolted into a heightened sense of the reality of our situation before God. It should produce a kind of simplification, right, in which what's important and what's peripheral becomes plain and obvious what we like to call order and proportion. Advent, he says, purges our spirits because it's a stark and it's a devastatingly simple reminder that the day of God is at hand. And so we're going to look at this text under three headings. They're there in the back inside of your bulletin. The delay, the day, the discipline. Again, 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 8. The church is experiencing this delay. We learn just prior to the text, right before this in 2 Peter 3, that scoffers are going to come in the last day, the last days. And these scoffers are going to call into question, they're going to mock the words of the prophets and the words of the apostles concerning the coming day of God. These are people, Peter tells the church, who are going to say, where is this coming? Where is this coming, he promised? Everything goes on as it has from the beginning of creation. Right? The days just keep happening linearly, right? And, And we kind of get sucked into this, right? We live like we're going to have millions of days. Everybody just expects the days to keep going on and on and on forever. We're akin to the scoffers in this. Right? When, when things are delayed, we really do lose focus on them often, don't we? Right? If your, your final exam is delayed, right? uh, some sort of deadline, a visit from the relatives, right? these things are delayed... We breathe a sigh of relief. 
We put off whatever we needed to do to prepare. We wait till the deadline sneaks back up on us. But imagine an event delayed a long time, hundreds or thousands of years, right? It's obvious that the wait's going to produce some ridicule, some scoffing, as it does here in our text. People are going to doubt that the delayed event, long promised, will ever materialize. So these are the scoffers that the church will face in the last days. And Peter, again, again, this is right before our text, he reminds us that even as the flood destroyed the world that then was, so the present heavens and earth are reserved, he says, for fire. They are kept for the day of judgment present heavens and earth are kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. And Peter says, this thing, he says, the scoffers deliberately forget. So you have this scoffing. And in the face of it, what are we to make? What are we to do with the delay? Well, in verse 8, Peter tells us not to forget this one thing. And then he cites Psalm 90. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So this this is really not about math here. In fact, if you take this literally, it's not very helpful, right? It's just a sort of conundrum. He, He actually says, A is like B, and B is like A. Okay. The point here is this. God transcends time. He doesn't have the same kind of relationship to it that we do. Because he's the creator and time is a creature. And so a short duration, very short, a day, is like a very long duration, a thousand years. And a very long duration, a thousand years, is like a very short duration, a day. Why? Because God transcends time. He transcends duration. There's no succession of moments in God. He does not change. He does not age. He has no personal past. He has no personal future. He lives in the eternal now. For him, all is present. This is what we mean when we say God is eternal. He's the one who inhabits eternity. And thus, he is not slow in keeping his promise, Peter says, as some understand slowness. Slowness, Peter's slowness, is not a category that applies to God. Peter says, even if it appears to us that he's delaying or tarrying about something. Time seems long to you and to me because we count up linear minutes and days and months and years. Calvin says, when the eternity of the kingdom of God comes, many ages will vanish away like a moment in time. So part of the problem here is that the church does not have the right view of God in the delay. Again, if the second coming does not come for 500 trillion years, it is theologically irrelevant to Peter. It makes no difference to the church. It is always near, always at hand. The judge is always at the door. He is never slow because he doesn't measure time the way we do. And because the end has appeared in Jesus. 
In fact, Peter says, he adds this. He says, God is not slow. Instead, he's patient. This is how you should interpret the delay. The longness that we experience, not God, but the longness that we experience shows divine patience. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. And so this patience of God here is a sign of his his kindness, just just as it was in Noah's day. It's an opportunity, it's space for human beings. It's time for the gospel to be proclaimed and for all the sheep of God. The chosen fold of God to be gathered in. That's what we think about the delay. So I want to look secondly at the day itself. And here, there's, this is really overwhelming at this point. there's There's this overwhelming, devastating, even shocking vision. Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, of course, it's true. Jesus uses that language, and Paul uses that language, and now Peter uses it. Sudden, unexpected, without warning for scoffers, or for numb, sleeping Christians. And in this coming day, the day of God, in contrast to the days of men and the days of the nations, the day in which God will be God and will be all in all. In the day of God, Peter says, the heavens, the atmospheric heavens, will disappear with a roar. What the water did in the global flood, fire will do in this global judgment. Right? There's a famous old spiritual, you may know it, God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, but fire next time. The very elements of the universe, probably a reference to the heavenly bodies, Peter says, the very elements of the universe will be destroyed by fire. They will melt with heat. And then verse 12 says, and the earth, and not just the earth, everything done in the earth will be laid bare. Same language used in Hebrews about the God who will call us to account and with whom we have to do. The earth, everything in the earth, will be laid bare, found out, exposed to the fire of this divine coming. And Peter repeats this. This conflagration, this cosmic fire, he mentions it here, and he mentions it again just a couple verses later in verse 12 for emphasis. Now, I think we ought to admit that this is a bit more than we can take in. (laughs) Our souls are trapped on our own succession of brief, fleeting moments. We're absorbed, rightfully so in many cases, in the immediate or short-term things. We, We cannot believe, this scene is very difficult to believe, even if we formally check some box and say we believe it. We struggle mightily to absorb and assimilate this scene. Everything, Peter says, everything, nothing is exempt. The heavens, the elements, 
the earth, everything done in the earth, everything we thought was solid and firm and enduring disappears, is destroyed, is laid bare, and is burned. Merry Christmas. Traditional New Testament reading, third week of Advent. It is a Merry Christmas text. Now, if the truth be told, this is offensive to us. I actually don't think we're honest about this in many cases. It may be making a couple of you nauseous. It does not seem to respect human culture and human history and human aspirations and the very created order itself. It sounds like some apocalyptic B-grade movie. It sounds like science fiction. I mean, you'd certainly be sneered at in elite circles, right? If you held this kind of, you know, barbaric, primitive, uh, fiery, cosmic destruction. It's appalling. It's an overwhelming scene. It's intended to be overwhelming. It's a ferocious frontal assault on our inability to separate the enduring invisible things from the temporal visible things. The things of chief importance from the superfluous things. It's going right at that, the text. The things that we are sure are ultimate things are, in fact, at best, penultimate things meaning things below the ultimate things. Perhaps good, definitely not ultimate. It will take a cosmic conflagration of fire on the day of God for us to see aright. And the the text, the day, as unnerving as it is, exists for that clarity to be brought to our souls. Because we have a disordered sense of what's important. But the cosmos itself will be, on the other side of this fire, renewed and restored. Look at verse 13. We are looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth. The prophets, for example, in Isaiah 65, Isaiah 66. We heard Isaiah 66 in the Old Testament lesson. The prophets speak of a coming New heavens and a new earth, right? Where violence and injustice are banished. A place where righteousness and peace reign. And if we ask, when the new testament and when the new heavens and the new earth will will appear? Well, we have to let the New Testament interpret the prophets. Here we see in this text that the new heavens and the new earth appear on the other side of this fire. They appear on the other side of the second coming, which is also where they appear in Revelation 21. The new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21 descend after the final judgment. The point is simple. When the old creation is destroyed, then the new emerges. We are lifted up into that new creation now. We wait for it to descend. And it comes when Jesus comes. And Jesus comes on the day of God. Now, Romans 8, for example, teaches the same thing about the present created order's futility. 
The creation, Paul says, is groaning in futility, waiting for the revelation of God's children at the appearance of Christ. Now, I do think we have a natural tendency to resist a vision of this day. Because what it does is it requires taking seriously that human life, all of it, in every tribe and tongue and nation and language, all of it in every culture, in every land, can be and shall be suddenly broken off, dissolved, shattered, burned, laid bare, ended, period. It's too daunting for us to hold in front of our consciousness. It's almost psychologically impossible to do. We have too much to do anyway. One wonders if it's even possible to take this seriously. It's much easier to take this and just throw it out there somewhere. But that's not the purpose it serves in Peter's exhortation to the church. It's very difficult to do this, I think, without becoming a crazed, apocalyptic fringe figure. It's a cosmic cataclysm. And that paralyzes and immobilizes most people. Right? Maybe you've felt that. Right? It, it seems like a paralyzing vision. And it would certainly be unnatural to read this text and have no fear of that day. Yet, I want you to notice this. Notice this about our orientation toward this future day in the text. Verse 12. As you look forward to the day of God. Verse 13. We are looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth. Verse 14, since you are looking forward to these things, what things? The fire and the new creation on the other side of it. Three times in three verses, this great day is the joy and the longing and the hope and the thing that the church is looking forward to. There's no looking forward to heaven without looking forward to this day. Jesus said, it is good for my servants that the master finds them watching when he comes. Not only looking forward, in verse 12 it says, we are seeking to speed it up, to hasten the day, if you will. Some translations, instead of hasten the day, say eagerly await the day. So the church is not only turned to this day, looking forward to this day, everything the church does is trying to get this day, from our point of view, to speedily appear. Right? When we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, or thy kingdom come. When we preach the gospel, which brings this day to bear on the souls of people, The church is repenting and confessing and worshiping. They all serve to hasten the day. So, are we looking for, looking for, looking for, three times, are we looking for and seeking to hasten this day? That's the question I think God himself puts to us this morning. Again, I think... If you ask us, we'll say yes. But if you don't ask us, 
if you don't ask us and you just listen to us talk about the things that are important to us, then the answer is clearly no. Because the day vanishes from view. We can go years without even mentioning it. Yet, Peter says this day is basic to Christian existence. To be ready, to be anxious, to be waiting, even if possible to precipitate or hasten the day. Now, I know what you're thinking, probably. It's disruptive, right? It's, it's, it's psychologically draining to be in this posture for any length of time, right? It's hard for us to wait. And it is. There's, there's no getting around this. This is the disruption of the text. If you read this text and you think, this is impossible. How, how, could, how could anyone psychologically place themselves under this fire? as a person looking, 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 hastening it, and then go about life in all of its busyness. If you've asked yourself that question, you've begun to listen to the text. You've begun to listen to what Webster called the jolting of Advent, the jarring disruption of the thing, the disorientation that it seeks to create. If we don't ask that question... Right, then business as usual is just going to continue. That's the day, the day of God. And finally, there's a discipline, and this is simple. What does the text want us to do? Verse 11, since everything, again, everything, will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Right, this is Francis Schaeffer's famous question from a couple of decades ago, right, where he asked, how then shall we live? Some of you, I think, are familiar with Schaeffer and that he wrote a famous book, How Then Shall We Live? It's a question Christians have asked for ages. You know what's missing? You may remember last week I said two words are missing about our praying, the so that. When we pray, there's never so that we may stand in the day of Christ. That's what's missing from our praying. This is what's missing from our doing. Our how shall we then live. This context of 2 Peter 3. Notice again the question. This is the question. Since everything will be destroyed by fire, how then shall we live? When is the last time anyone asked a question about Christian worldview or Christian living or Christian ethics with that preface? And that preface, by the way, changes the kind of answer a person gives. We are not in the Christian life asking general timeless questions like, what is the Christian view of economics? And what is the Christian view of X? And what is the Christian view of Y? And how should a Christian live in such and such a situation? All our ethical questions in the Christian life are asked in the towering shadow of this fiery inferno. Since everything is going to be dissolved in this cosmic explosion and renewal of all things, how then should we live? Now, that's different. The question now sounds different. Since everything is going to be vaporized by fire, what kind of people ought we to be? 
Now, now that's apostolic language. That's talking the way Peter talks. Right? That's having the question itself now is already singed with the smoke of the eschaton. Right? Is anything we say singed with? Can you smell that on anybody? Of course not. We ask general, timeless, ethical questions. Right? If you're a Marxist, you have das Kapital. If you're a Christian, you throw that out, you put the Bible in. But the formal structure is the same. It's an ideology to ask timeless questions about how we should live. But that's just not what happens in the New Testament. So what is Peter? So Peter puts the question that way. Since everything is going to be dissolved, how should we live? What's his answer? Well, surprisingly, it's not going to satisfy us. Well, I think it will satisfy us as long as the day of God dominates our consciousness. It's not going to seem very specific, though, because it's going to seem to be lacking in detail. Here's what Peter says. We're to live holy and godly lives. That's it. I mean, he's not talking about spiritual disciplines in general or the pursuit of holiness in general. Again, he's talking about a kind of holiness and godliness that already belongs to this new order. That's already singed with the smoke of the end. Notice this about the text. We, we have in this text, if you look at it in the New Testament, something like an ethics sandwich. And the bread is the day of God, and the ethics are what's in between, sandwiched in between. Here's the whole verse. Since everything is to be destroyed in this way, there's the day of God. Be people who live holy lives, there's the ethics. As you look forward to the day of God. This is how Christians should think about everything they do. Day of God, how do I behave? Day of God. Because that's how Peter thinks. So, end, ethics, end. There's no properly ordered Christian life without the devastating jolting of this day. Even Christian holiness smells wrong when it has not been rocked or displaced or gripped or shaken or sandwiched by the day. Verse 14 puts it this way. Since we are looking forward to this day, make every effort to be found. In other words, there's a certain finding of the day, right? The day exposes us. Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. The whole creation, Peter says, he uses the same word, is going to be found out, laid bare, and we are to focus every single effort on being found ourselves, spotless on that day. So the day does not, it should not paralyze us. It doesn't, right? It's the unique, the day's the unique stimulus. Right, the unique stimulus, the unique goal, the unique context which inspires Christian purity, Christian godliness, Christian peace. Now, you would never know this. You could have a stack of books on Christian behavior and Christian worldview this high without ever knowing that the day of God is the fundamental context for Christian living. 
This is the deepest form of Christian inspiration. It's not a form of Christian inspiration among other forms. This is why we do what we do. This is the wellspring of Christian ethics. If this they was not there, right, we, we, we would not be here. There'd be no reason to do. Christianity would just be a social movement. Faith, your faith illumines that day. And your hope yearns for that day. And charity carries us forward to unite us to that day. You know why this is the case? Because the day is just the revealing of Jesus whom we love. And on whose appearance our hope is fully set. Again, it goes back to what I said a couple weeks ago. It's, It's amazing how Christians live as if they're happy with Jesus to stay in Europe and FaceTime them for the next thousand years. It's odd. Jesus is the one we love, but we're not yearning for the day when we see him. And the apostolic writings exist among other things, but they exist primarily to jolt us into that kind of rightly ordered longing. So let me conclude. Okay, so there's probably not a single modern evangelical who would include this text among the Advent readings. By the way, this is the first time I've ever preached on 2 Peter 3 at Advent. And this is my 15th or 18th Advent. And I've stayed away from it because it's just difficult. It's just unusual. It doesn't show up in any Advent devotions or Advent customs. No one would do it. The text is shocking enough, but Christmas in this text? It sounds like a mismatch, but it's not a mismatch. There's a lot of ways to show it's not a mismatch, but one of them is this. One of them was the New Testament lesson, which is the gospel lesson for today. I didn't I don't pick the reading. It's from Luke's gospel. And of course it, it contains another weird anomaly. Namely, that John the Baptist is in the Christmas story as well. But that's a story for another day. But what John says there is, I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's the fire of 2 Peter 3. So you know what John the Baptist is saying when Jesus is in line to be baptized? He's saying he is already, at the time of his first appearance, already ready to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Right? The first coming sets the second coming in motion. So it's right there in the gospel text. But the purifying fire of the Holy Spirit which Luke mentions, that's why the day of fire is to be for you a day of joy. It's entrance into glory through that fire for you. Because you have the fire of the Holy Spirit now already purifying and purging and jolting and awakening and transforming you. And bringing the glory which is to come to bear upon your soul. So that the day of fire is for us a day which we look beyond and through through this vast cosmic cataclysm 
and upheaval into the new heavens and into the new earth. We look forward to this. The Lord comes to set things right. And without that thrice repeated, again, I I want you to notice this. It's thrice repeated, looking forward, looking forward, looking forward. Without that, without that, we shrink the Christian living down to a largely this worldly concern. Without that, looking forward, looking forward, looking forward, you cannot smell the smoke of the end on us. We're not singed with it. But with it, with it, looking forward, looking forward, looking forward, right? Through the, through the fire of the Spirit, you will be found spotless, blameless, at peace in Christ on the day of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but this word of the Lord will endure forever. Amen.